Hey, welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast for Wednesday. I'm guest host Greg Brady. So a group of doctors, epidemiologists, and others have put a framework together on how we can avoid a third wave of COVID-19. That sounds unappealing, that third wave. The new report's called Building the Canadian Shield. Dr. David Fisman didn't write the report, but he's out advocating for it. He's been a really important voice during this pandemic and has gotten a lot more right than wrong, he joins us to discuss. The NDP calling on a new school plan before the reopening. We'll talk to education critic Marit Stiles about that. And vaccines finally rolling out in long-term care. Do we think they can get done? What are, you know, some saying not quite so lofty goals. Can they get this done in the four hotspots before January 21st? And what about the other LTCs? We'll address that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Dr. Thomas Stewart, as you heard in the news, has resigned from, he was on not just one, not two, but more than two COVID-19 advisory groups, but he went to the Dominican Republic over the holidays. Um, I love the idea that, you know, there's two things that have been funny about all this travel with politicians and now uh, this guy is that the trips were approved and the trips were also pre-planned. It, like, again, you're not the, the only unplanned trips are when you're like, you know, in a mob movie when, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio realizes Matt Damon knows who he is in The Departed and you got to pack a bag with cash and a gun and get out of there. That's the only unplanned travel that there is escaping from someone. OK, uh, so, of course, the trip was planned, um, but he's the CEO of St. Joseph's Health System and Niagara Health. Honestly, like, again, Please don't. And I'd say this with the politicians. I heard from politicians last week that said, listen, this is and, and from you know all sides of the political fence that said, good heavens, like like bad example. But this will bust up the public trust. It, it, it does. And we're seeing this in Alberta. We saw this in the UK. The, the, they did studies on this in the UK when there were ministers of Boris Johnson that traveled that should not have even in the spring. Um, to uh, to go places. And it was a huge, huge, huge problem uh, to rebuild. And we're going to be rebuilding post-pandemic. Uh, we're going to be rebuilding for some time. But I would echo, Ir- Irfan Dalla is a fantastic follow on Twitter. He's the VP at St. Mike's Hospital. And here's what he tweeted. The overwhelming majority of healthcare professionals have been working very hard over the last few weeks, perhaps taking a few days off while staying closer to home. Yes, the time off was valuable. We debated this when we wondered why no one was vaccinated Christmas Day and Christmas Eve as well. But he lays it. Oh, and and I want to add the, the best part. I hope that the behavior of a very small number isn't used to suggest that we don't practice what we preach. Uh, I want to bring on uh, Dr. David Fisman right now, who is a uh, epidemiologist and uh, a professor uh, as well at the University of Toronto. Dr. Fisman, thanks very much for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's always a little can... little challenging to come on your show because I feel like, you know, in your intros, you generally say everything that I could ever say, but you say it much more articulately and clearly than I would say it. So, uh, well, and it was your I idea to play the clip from uh, then. Fine. Thank you very much. And I have great respect for you. It was your idea to play the clip from trading places. How right, can you right. deny trading places? Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's almost like some of this stuff is getting so ridiculous that, it, it, you know, how else are you going to represent this to people? I mean, you have to use use farce to convey, con- convey it. I mean, the ridiculousness and the hypocrisy um 
is is just sort of jaw jaw dropping. I I had heard rumors about this yesterday about Dr. Stewart before it hit the media, mm-hmm. and I kind of discounted them, you know, as hearsay. You know, come on, you know, he's not going to do that. The guy's an intensivist. He's uh, he knows the optics. He's 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 been on the command table since the get go. Um, surely that's not possible. And then you know, CBC came out with the story last night. It, it, it's um, it's so disappointing. It, it's such a failure of leadership. And as you pointed out so so well, when we have leaders who undermine the public health messaging, leaders who are part of the crafting of that public health messaging who are then undermining it, you know, it, it's no wonder that people are struggling with what they should or shouldn't be doing right now. Yeah, trust is so hard to, uh, you know, it's so hard to build and establish, yeah. and it is among, you know, friends, and, you know, you, you build it leading up to, you know, getting married to a partner, um, you, you build it as a parent, and when you do a few things to, to bust it up, man, is it hard to rebuild, and, and, that, and we're talking about people that not a lot of people would know who Dr. Stewart is, so it doesn't matter if a colleague comes to his defense and says, hey, you know, you just don't know him, he's a really good guy, the same kind of defense John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, gave to Rod Phillips last week. It's irrelevant. It, it, it It's immaterial. And if anything, it's a bit insulting because right. that's not the point. You, you, you it, It's actions, not words right now. Actions are defining everybody these past nine or ten right. months. And we've all, and, I'm sure, made mistakes, and, just not that graphic. And he, 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 he is a really good guy, but his actions are absolutely inexcusable. And and what what you you pointed out that he's resigned from these three tables. So I'm on a couple of tables too. I don't get paid for that. I assume he didn't get paid for that. I think the bigger the bigger issue for him is that he's the CEO not of two hospitals but of two hospital systems. I think St. Joe's mm-hmm. and Niagara between them. That's eleven hospitals, and some of those hospitals have been in have had COVID outbreaks while he's been away. Some of those hospitals are dealing with with uh, very full and overflowing ICUs while he's away. You look at his Twitter feed, and he's retweeting all this, you know, public health stuff and all this stuff about, um, uh, you know, outbreaks at his hospitals. I mean, was he tweeting uh, during the dates when he's away in the Dominican Republic? So, so you know, is he tweeting that on the beach? Did he just delegate his Twitter account to someone because he's out of the country and you know, like Rod Phillips wants it? to appear that he's in the country i don't know but but the the, the optics are, are really really terrible and um you know i i think those hospital systems are going to have some some hard calls to make in the days ahead but but it's mm-hmm. it's 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 the opposite of good leadership david fisman uh dr david fisman is our guest on the bill kelly show greg brady guest hosting for him i want to run through a few things with you because uh uh you know it's uh it's it's very much on everybody's mind i don't think you can get through these topics enough and get information out there uh the vaccinations are you more encouraged by news that they are quote unquote ramping up in the last 24 36 hours i think we all felt a little bit defeated uh and disconsolate around december 27th when we realized and and healthcare professionals who would have absolutely given even their own free time and volunteered to vaccinate people that so desperately needed the most uh, weren't able to have the last couple of days been more encouraging a hundred percent and I, I you know and i think i think what we have to do with the vaccine stuff is you know there 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 are setbacks there have been setbacks 
you know, we pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and it's going in a good direction now. I think the message has gotten through. Uh, you mentioned Irfan Dalla as one of the unsung really heroes, I think, behind the scenes in this pandemic in Ontario. I think Isaac Bogotch is another one. And we're really lucky mm-hmm. to have Isaac as part of that vaccine task force. And I think Isaac has been been quite concerned about the pace of vaccination and has been working very, very, very hard uh, to, to, to generate that sense of urgency. And I think it's I think it's taken. Um, you know, the, I think having having hard deadlines in terms of getting every single long term care resident in the um, in the in the province, at least uh, uh, um well, I think I think it's it's in the hotspot regions that they're going for January 21st. They should be able to get every single long-term care resident in the province at least a first dose by the end of the month. That takes a lot of the death from this thing right off the table right there, because we know this thing does protect older people. Uh, flu vaccine, for example, works less well in older people. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which are basically the same vaccine, seem to work very, very well in older people. If we can protect the residents of long-term care facilities and start rolling this out aggressively in people over age 70 in Ontario, we are going to make this a lot less scary situation very, very fast because overwhelmingly those are the people who are doing the dying. That has implications not just in terms of you know our emotional lives and losing our loved ones, but also in terms of hospital capacity. You know, the, most of the folks from long-term care, if they get sick, are not going into intensive care. So that's not what's mopping up our ICU resources and forcing us to open field hospitals. But there are a lot of fit older people who are getting this and getting very sick and are going into into hospital winding up in intensive care. So the more we can protect the most vulnerable people, which is mostly a function of age, the more we can offload our, our hospital systems, which are really starting to, to, to groan under the weight of all these these people in the ICU. So yeah, it's, it's very urgent. I think I think you're probably going to talk about the one dose, two dose thing. What we see from the trials yeah. is that that single dose gives a lot of protection all by itself. We don't know how durable that protection is, and people do need to get that second dose. But um, what's happening with supply chain is we're getting more and more vaccine faster and faster and faster. So we just need to be getting those first doses into as many people as we can as fast as we can. I think Isaac has created that sense of urgency for the vaccine task force and it's starting to happen i, I want to get to the canadian shield and i want to get to schools too but i want to follow up on that because i i think it's critical messaging and and i know there's people in the medical community that message me and say make sure you get the word out on this but it's some of the misinformation we've all been battling misinformation for for nine or ten months or the or or the um growth an acknowledgement that we have new information that trumps some of our old information. That's how yeah. that's how things work when we get educated. But there are people I know that are are thinking, oh, um, can diabetics get the vaccine? What if you have Parkinson's? What if you uh, or I, I, I know there's somebody that I spoke to that oh, they're allergic to bee stings and they're afraid to get it. No, no, no. Like like we need strong cogent messaging about this um that that, yeah there might be a side effect or two but the alternative and not getting it especially for aged people especially for our vulnerable people dr fisman far 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 more risky and far worse oh absolutely and I, i was having a conversation with someone about this yesterday in terms of for example people who have autoimmune disease where their their body's immune system attacks itself do you are they at risk for autoimmune uh uh um disease sort of uh, uh, ramping up a bit 
after vaccination. And that may be the case. But what we see in the, the data from Ontario is people who are immune compromised, and a lot of those are folks who have autoimmune disease who are on immune suppressing drugs, are at about three or four times the risk of dying if they get COVID versus others yeah. in Ontario. So the risk benefit, it's a no brainer. I mean, we need to get vulnerable older people, people who have medical comorbidities. They've just gotten rid of um, rid of pregnancy as a, as a restriction on vaccination because we have absolutely no reason to believe that that giving this vaccine would be would be harmful in pregnancy. And pregnant women are at increased risk of severe illness and death from COVID. We need we need to be getting. The the prioritization scheme is good, and every person who's being prioritized for vaccine needs to get that vaccine. It's a safe vaccine. It's been given to tens of thousands of people. Are there some some side effects from the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, sore arm and fever is 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 most of what you see, and that's what you expect with a vaccine because vaccines are designed to rev your immune system up, and that's what it does. You don't see an increased risk of any sort of medical illness or condition or significant problem in vaccinated versus unvaccinated people. Based on the trials that we've had for both Moderna and and Pfizer, we know they're both safe vaccines. The risk of adverse events, uh, bad side effects in these vaccines are probably running one or two per hundred thousand doses is very much lower than what we see with COVID. And people need to need to if you if you're lucky enough to get the vaccine early, get it. Uh, the, the Canadian Shield, I know uh, it's something you have advocated. You've pointed a lot of us in the media in the right direction of speaking to some of the scientists, doctors and, and health experts that are calling for more aggressive measures. If anything, what's happened here, though, there have been some uh, spats and we've all we've all been involved in, in them about, you know, locking down versus not locking down. I think it's finally come to fruition that many have realized this economy, you can want the economy to recover. You can want consumer confidence to bounce back. These numbers make it impossible for that to, to transpire. So the numbers are the first thing that have to go down. Tell our listeners about the principles involved in the Canadian Shield and uh, if some of them are adopted, um, how our lives change over to prevent uh, more lockdowns in the spring, for example. So the, the basic idea with Canadian Shield is exactly as you've said, there's been this false dichotomy for months now, this sort of, you know, uh, Hobson's choice, where you told you have a choice, but it's not really a choice because you have have only one thing you can do. This idea that, well, if we protect health, we're going to sacrifice the economy. We have a lot of data now from International Monetary Fund, from specific economies and countries around the world, even within Canada in terms of how the Atlantic provinces are doing economically, that the best thing you can do for your economy is control COVID, full stop. Um, that doesn't mean that controlling COVID doesn't have economic costs. But what's really nice about the Canadian Shield document is the fellow who put it together is, a, is an experienced uh, politician, business leader, a guy named Robert Greenhill. I wasn't involved in Canadian Shield. I know I seem to have been labeled on social media as the mastermind behind it. I'm just, I'm just sort of amplifying it. <laughs> the evil mastermind. Really, Let's be honest know, about apparently, this. Apparently, Bill Gates <laughs> is showing up to my house later today with a sack of gold <laughs> that he'll leave under the porch. Um, but um, lucky you. So the, the the cool thing about about this is what Greenhill did is he got together a bunch of people who are very good epidemiologists, and Ashley Chute and Carolyn Colleen among them. J.P. Susi, who's a doctoral student at U of T. 
and said to the epidemiologist, what do we need to do to make disease look better? And then he said to a bunch of economists and business leaders, including folks from, you know, such <laughs> such mm. fly-by-night le- le- lefty pinko organizations as Canadian Chamber of Commerce and, and Bell Media, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, he, he's got he's got business leaders who are also weighing in on this thing, and economists from Queen's University who are doing some modeling, saying, you know, what's best for the economy, and what Canadian Shield is saying is there's a convergence. We we lose the least jobs when we control disease well. They, they what they're arguing is we don't go as whole whole hog as Melbourne, Australia. We don't lock down that hard, but we lock down close to that hard, and it's a real lockdown. That means real restriction of movement, uh, real reduction in person to person contact. And that mm-hmm. by doing that, and doing that in a sustained way for four to six weeks, we're going to get disease down to a point where, if, and, and it's going to happen even faster as vaccines are going in, um, we get disease down to a point where we can do what they're doing in the Atlantic, which is test, trace, isolate, and cluster bust. And then we keep this under control. But, but the idea is that if you, the, the idea from the Queen's modeling is, if you keep mo- if you keep locking down reactively only when you're in a crisis and then you ease up and then you're back in the same same boat two weeks later, that is the most devastating thing you can do for the economy because it just sort of never ends. It's the mm-hmm. worst of both worlds strategy, whereas actually taking ownership of this thing and, and doing what they've been doing in Atlantic Canada for months now is the best thing for the economy. And so that you know that's why I, I sort of have been you know, tweeting about it and saying, you know, this is really good and thoughtful. And it's actually got folks pointing out that this isn't about health or the economy. It's about health and the economy. Um, I got 60 seconds. I want to know about elementary schools next week. I, I, I'm going to talk to, to uh, uh, Merritt Stiles, uh, top of the hour, um, but the NDP education critic, I can't see it happening. I, I, I think uh, there's been a lot of doubling down, tripling down. I think we needed schools open in the fall. I think for the most part, they were successful. It was not the doomsday scenario that some suggested it might be. That said, I think it's utterly and completely impossible and irresponsible to to send 20 kids back to classrooms and have them eat lunch five days a week in them. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I think the best analogy is gasoline on the fire. You know, we're, things are already burning and we know that the reproduction number in a region is going to bump up when you open the schools. And we're already struggling. Our, our reproduction number is not super high. It's 1.1 right now in Ontario. But the thing is, when we have three, 4,000 cases a day, which is the range that we're in, a 10% week-on-week growth in daily case counts, it is just not sustainable. Our ICs are already full. Our hospitals are already... I mean, we, I mean, I mean we're, we've got the nightmare scenarios where the morgues are full and we have freezer trucks now in London and Windsor to deal with morgue overflow. This is exactly yeah. the sort of stuff we were talking about last summer is we don't want to go there and we're there. So on top of all that, to open the schools now, um, I, I, you know, I have an eight-year-old who misses her friends like crazy and I know. is desperate to be back in the classroom. I, you know, I get it. She loves it. It's good for her. But, mm. you know, we're in a public health crisis right now. And I, I, I agree with you. You can't, you can't, you can't do that yeah. responsibly in in the in the high transmission parts of the province at the moment. You just can't do it. He's uh, Dr. David Fisman. I consider him one of the least dangerous Canadians I know. <laughs> um, 
Thank you very much for the time. I <laughs> I know we'll talk again. I enjoy our chats as always, and uh, we'll be talking about more positive things as to how 2021 moves forward. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, we will. I know you're out of time, but if folks just keep keep your eye on the ball, after March 2021, life's going to get a lot better. Yeah, and awesome. Thank you. Dr. Fisman okay. uh, joining us on uh, The Bill Kelly Show. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Education. What are we doing next week? What are we doing now? What's the what's the game plan? Quebec is going to close their schools, every single damn one of them. They are later today. You watch. It'll happen 5 o'clock today. What are we doing in response? Um, so I'm concerned about education. I think we need a short-term plan and a long-term plan. I'll get to that in a sec. Now, I want to bring this up about um, a great Globe and Mail article today. Uh, Caroline Alfonso, who uh, I speak to on a regular basis, Ivan Semenyuk wrote about this. She's the education reporter. He's the science reporter. And they have a quote from Ronald Cohn, who's the president of Sick Kids, And they're talking about schools going back. And I'll read you from the article. Uh, Ronald Cohn, president of Sick Kids, said if the politicians reopen schools, given the high level community transmission, safety measures such as masks, physical distancing, cohorting and proper ventilation will have to be strictly followed. That's not dissimilar from what was suggested in June when the when Sick Kids put a report together. And I know many people who worked on that report who I've spoken to off the record um, and, and the best of intentions were there. But let me add this. Here's the caveat. Here's where the giant asterisk with flashing lights should be. They would also need to institute a robust testing, tracing, and isolation strategy for anyone who gets COVID-19. So right away, we've struggled with the ventilation. We knew that would be the case. Test, trace, and isolate, we've not done very well at all in, in that department. And we're not testing asymptomatically. I laid out the last two days what New York State did before they closed the schools. And they closed them with a positivity of 3%. They said, this isn't safe. We can't be certain kids aren't asymptomatic spreaders. Many studies suggest they are. And that's certainly grown true in the fall and winter months as well. Our positivity rate the other day was 9.8. It's 8.7 today with 3,300 cases. So every parent sitting around every kitchen table, single parent, two-parent two, uh, two households, in my estimation, is hoping that their kids aren't going back on Monday. And that's a big statement because it was the right thing for them to do in the fall. As I said before, it was the last thing we should have been hesitant to do. We needed to have some confidence. We needed to go without trepidation. You have you have every reason to have some trepidation about this right now because of the case numbers. And guess what? If you get COVID now in the middle of January compared to getting it in July, what do you think your what do you think your treatment's going to be like in a hospital? Okay, we're overflowing. We're 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 handling people in tents outside hospitals right now. We weren't doing that in July. Big big difference. I want to bring on the uh, education critic uh, for uh, the NDP and MPP from Davenport. She is Marit Stiles. Uh, Marit, thanks very much for making the time. Happy New Year. I appreciate you coming on with me. Happy New Year. It's great to be here. Uh, as I said, Dr. Ronald Cohn uh, laid this out. Now, here's his quote in June. I wanted to read you this and get you to react to this. We have to accept COVID-19 will stay with us for a long time. We must move on with certain activities in our lives, such as schooling, while keeping in mind there are a lot of ways to mitigate risk. There were a lot of suggestions in the Sick Kids report 
that just simply weren't followed by the government with regard to to cohorts and ventilation. And I know you and I have spoke several times and I said I was way more confident with my high school kid than I was with my elementary school kid. And I'm sure you heard that from a lot of parents. That said, that quote from June, it doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't we're, with where our cases are in, in, in the middle of January and the climate as well, that we won't be able to get kids outside as frequently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is why, and I, and look, absolutely, you look back on some of the things that we were calling for. I was, I was calling, I, I put forward a motion in the House back in July, uh, calling for some of this. But, you know, now here we are. Uh, kids are going to be back in school in many parts of the province, most kids, uh, in, in, in less than a week, uh, according to the government's plan. And we still don't have a testing plan in school in place right now. Uh, we don't have, and what we need is a broad, comprehensive, asymptomatic testing and tracing program in schools. Uh, we don't have that, and so when the when the minister says, "Well, we don't have spread in schools," we we really don't know. But more importantly, as you said, I think you know you said it so well. We were in a different place today than we were even in September, and so we need that. And we also need the government to to actually do what we've been asking, which is to make those those class sizes smaller and smaller because we need to be able to ensure that our students, our kids, and their staff are able to physically distance properly. I, I know there's smart people working uh, on this Sick Kids Report, and there's people that, that have uh, our children's best interests at heart here. Could we see some sort of elementary school system where it's more similar to the high school system. I, I, I don't know. You know, I'm almost willing to accept and acquiesce that maybe they're going every other day or they're going half days. Mm-hmm. I, I know parents mm-hmm. don't want to teach uh, eight and nine year olds online for seven hours a day. I know what that does to a household. You would have gone through it. I went through it. A lot of our listeners yeah. went through it. Surely there's some kind of compromise here between, mm-hmm. hey, we're wide open just like we were in the fall. And boom, we're all shut down for several weeks in a row because of the numbers. There has to be a middle ground. There is. And, you know, I, I think when you look back uh, back at, in August when um, school boards came up with plans for how this would work, they actually had some really innovative ideas. And the government actually shut those ideas down. And they basically said, look, we, we yeah, we hear you, but we, we want we don't we really want kids to go back to basically the same sort of situation. And they did focus uh, on in hot zones like the GTA. They focused on reducing the class sizes for high school students, which I totally get. But I think they need to go back and look at those other ideas, those innovative solutions that school boards are coming up with. And look, I mean, we got to we got to we got to also acknowledge the elephant in the room here, which is the government. Why is the government not doing this? And it all comes down to, I hate to say it, dollars and cents. Um, they're sitting on a lot of relief dollars still that have not been spent. We haven't seen how they're going to plan to spend those. Uh, we need to do it now, and we need to make sure there's a plan in place that acknowledges that we have a different reality today and that it is not necessarily safe to send our kids back to the same size classrooms they had in, you know, 2019. Mark Stiles, our guest, NDP education critic on The Bill Kelly Show, Greg Brady, guest hosting. The the thing I hear from parents over and over again, the thing I hear even from people that 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 voted um, for this government um, is is that they're like, I could accept it if 
it, it was it, there was just more transparency and the idea that hey we know that the, that that there's risk involved everything involves just risk mitigation right now and keeping nothing is a hundred percent safe the idea parents are irritated that the messaging has been well there's no safer place on the planet to be than uh you know in a grade five classroom in the ontario public education system there just is no no scientific yeah. background to suggest that that's true none yeah it's really frustrating and it is exactly what the minister of education says every day in the legislature when we're sitting and i ask him those questions that's exactly what he says he says oh no worries you know, schools are super safe. 99% of students are safe, but we don't know that. I mean, it's actually very misleading. And I think, like you said, what I'm hearing from parents, too, is that in their guts, they know that's not true. And and they don't want to put their children in a, in a situation where they're at risk, but they also don't want to put the teachers and everybody who works in schools at risk. And, and it's a tough time. Like, don't get me wrong. I mean, I also have been a huge advocate, I think we all have, of, of trying to reopen schools as much as we can. But we have to do it safely. If we're not doing it safely, then we are going to see uh, schools become a conduit for, for transmission of COVID. And, and it may happen within schools. It may happen when kids come home after school. Um, but, but that is going to happen, and we know it. And, and so the fact that the government hasn't moved on this testing and tracing, hasn't actually reduced class sizes, like, I, it's, not, it's no joke. Students in most parts of this province uh, even in the GTA and Hamilton area and such, what we've seen, those class sizes, especially for younger students, are the same size that they were when school broke in March last year. And that's just not okay. I, there's just, there's no logic to the idea. It's not safe for university to be in session. You, you remember what college was like. You had a certain amount of class hours. You come for two hours, you leave. And it's not safe for high schools. And again, I, 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 I approved, basically, of the high school plan. It worked for our household. Um, and, and it checked a lot of boxes for us. But the idea that 11-year-olds can sit there seven hours a day, five days a week, and it's safe for them, but not for a 16-year-old, and it's not even safe for a 22-year-old to go to a lecture with 20 people in it at a well-ventilated uh, you know, you know, university lecture hall. Come on, there's something missing here. Yeah, and I think the sad thing is that it's exactly those people, too, who those families where you might have somebody who's immunocompromised or, you know, that are they're forced to make this really terrible choice about keeping their kids home. And, and again, like with very little support, like let's not forget, too, that um, there really hasn't been a lot of support. And I'll tell you, you know, the other thing that really bothers me right now that I'm hearing from a lot of parents about is, is that we aren't actually also putting the supports in place to uh, on the learning side, right? So when we have students, mm-hmm. and we will have, you know, I would say the way things are going, more more kids probably learning at home, online, um, but there just aren't any additional supports. And if you have any learning challenges in your household, you know, then, then this is going to be a really big issue. And there's a lot of kids slipping through the cracks. And the government, again, you know, we've asked them repeatedly, what is the plan to address those learning gaps? And so far, their only answer is being, well, you know, you can send your kid to summer school. Well, that's no solution. Uh, no. We need to also be looking at how we're going to catch these kids up, uh, you know, and how we're going to provide the support now to support families who are struggling. Uh, NDP MPP Mart Styles, our guest on the Bill Kelly Show. I want to hardly housekeeping, but I'll cut to another uh, couple issues. And, and one is your leader, Andrea Horvath, wants Queens Park to uh, reconvene uh, before February. February is a long. Think about how long this week's already been. It's only Wednesday. February is a long way away. What are the benefits of getting back into legislature um, for all parties and all members of Parliament? 
Well, I think it goes to what you said earlier. You know, we don't really see a lot of accountability from this government right now. So that's that's part of it for sure is is a bit of transparency, uh, accountability, being able to ask questions um, that we are hearing from people in the community, in our communities uh, and ask the minister in the legislature those questions and the premier. Uh, and, and so that's really important part of democracy, and it's how we keep government accountable. But look, now more than ever, and I think that's why uh, Andrea is, is calling for the House to resume. I know we're all, and our clock is on board, ready to go back at any moment, because there are important issues. Uh, we need to figure out solutions to save lives right now in long-term care uh, in communities. We need to address uh, the state of our ICUs. And like you said, I mean, we, we, it, it's becoming a real problem if you get sick right now. Uh, we are worried that people might not be able to get the care they need. Uh, and so, so this is, this is some, many reasons why we need to put, pull the legislature back. But, but I think in an emergency like this, more than ever. And I actually think Ontarians expect us to do that. It is, uh, it's not that work stops when the legislature isn't sitting, but it is, it, there's less transparency and there's less accountability. I'm going to talk about long-term care at the bottom of the hour, but but is there a methodology, is there a way um, that, you know, I wouldn't even say politics can be pushed aside, but is there a way that that both at the provincial level, at the national level, we can get together in the next few years, and, and I don't know that we can do it even, pre, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, and solve this issue? And, and because it benefits everybody and the cost, forget about the morality and the ethics of keeping our seniors healthier and, uh, and safer in, in, you know, obviously their later life where they're far more susceptible to illness and death. But is, is there a way forward that just doesn't involve, um, back and forth on, uh, you know, yeah. uh, uh, in the political spectrum? Is there a way? Yeah, and I and I hear you. I mean, I think we're well past I told you so, and we're into solutions. We've got to work together, and it has been frustrating. I mean, I'm an opposition member. I'm in the official opposition, and, and I, I, I think we should all be sitting down together. Uh, we have not been doing that. The government has been very, I will say, has, has not really op- provided opportunities to do that, but we should be sitting together. We should be sitting together. We should be working together on solutions. Uh, we need to be listening, most importantly, to the experts, the folks who've been, who have the solutions, and, and making sure we can all work together to, to support uh, the hard work that needs to happen. And I, I really think that that's what Ontarians are looking for. I mean, this is a crisis. And, and let's be clear, once the COVID pandemic, you know, once everybody is, is enough people are vaccinated, if we can get to that point, uh, long-term care will continue to be an issue. Uh, it has been for, frankly, generations. And we need to fix this. And there is a role for the federal government in this as well. Uh, and I think we at all levels and in all political parties need to roll up our sleeves and get to work. And I think Ontarians really expect nothing less from us. Mara, thanks for the time today. I really appreciate it. I know it's busy uh, and I, I do hope legislature reconvenes and all the parties are there and uh, we're working for Ontarians for uh, solutions over what's going to be a long, it's going to be a long eight, nine weeks, no matter what solutions we come up with. But I appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much. And I got to tell you how much I appreciate as well all the work that you are doing and the media in in bringing transparency and, and keeping people informed. It's so important. Thank you. Just trying to play it up the middle. Thank you very much. Mart Styles, our guest, uh, NDP uh, education critic. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring on Dr. Andrew Boozery, physician with Inner City Health Associates and assistant professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, also founder of the Harvard Public Health Review. It's a lot of titles, but an important voice. Uh, Dr. Boozery, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Greg. 
Happy to have you. By the way, I was doing some reading on you last night. You used to be a bit of a tennis player, eh? Like, could I get a game off you in a in a set? Do you figure just a game? <laughs> I mean, these days I haven't played much tennis. I'm sure you could take the whole set. You know. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's finding some place to play, uh, and you know, we we look ahead to April, and we think uh, we think better days indeed uh, are ahead of us. Um, I want to ask you about LTCs, obviously, with the news yesterday. What was it like? I think we we have this mixed reaction. We think, okay, you know what? We breathe a bit deeper uh, that they're going to utilize the Pfizer vaccines at LTCs in addition to the Moderna one. But the idea that even in hot spots, even where, uh, you know, residents are dying on a regular basis or getting in positions where they will die. And those are two different things that we're not vaccinating everybody until January 21st. That's a long time to wait. And that's only a goal. That's not any kind of guarantee. What was your thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the singular most important race of our lives is to get the vaccines, uh, a variety of the vaccines, every combination, every innovation possible out to long-term care residents and the staff. This is where we've seen the concentration of deaths. This is where we continue to see cases uh, that are now not only rivaling the first wave, but are surpassing uh, the atrocities that we went through in the first wave. And you know, this has to be the public health focus. And, you know, I think it's, it's good to set goals. I think I know that, you know, there's tons of people wanting to to volunteer to step in from primary care to nursing, uh, to hospitals to see this happen. Um, And we just really need the, the support and leadership to ensure that this, this happens as quickly as possible. You know, I think, we can look back at how things have stalled. And yes, there should be reports and commissions in the future of the inhumanity that's happened in long-term care homes. I think the dead set focus right now is on every single hour, every single minute to ensure that the vaccines are out there and that every single long-term care resident can get vaccinated, um, hopefully before January 21st. Long term, long term picture, uh, sort of macro instead of micro. I, I hope I am actually I'm, I'm growing some quiet confidence, uh, Dr. Boozeri, that we've looked at this scenario and we've all had, you know, my grandmother, my mom's mom went into long term care in in the mid 90s. But, you know, you're 19, you're 20, you're 21 years old. You'd go see her. You wouldn't feel great because she wouldn't remember you, et cetera. She suffered from dementia. But I think I, I hope this lens we're looking at now for people like you and me in our 30s and 40s, um, I hope it frightens the hell out of us. I hope it does that we the idea of us being there and these conditions being similar 30 years from now, frighten us into action and and make us vote the right way and advocate the right way and spend the right way. Um, it's our money at the end of the day uh, that we're taxed. Yeah. We've got to we've just got to do better, don't we? Do you think we're getting more people on the same side, no matter which way they vote about this? Greg, I just hope you're you're right. You know, I think that's the one thing that we can hold to is that we can't go back to what we accepted, as you said, for 30, 40 years to happen for another 30, 40 years. There's this opportunity to build a better society and one that does not discriminate against our seniors and elders. You know, and I think that the the virus, as we're learning about the virus, we're also learning about ourselves as the host, as a society of where we've allowed the virus to take uh, place, allowed it to take hold and inhumanity it's been able to show the society we've had and who's been protected, who's been neglected. And there's no question we've neglected 
our seniors. We've allowed not only to your point about public dollars, we've allowed for-profit entities in this place, mm-hmm. in, in this place that are financialized. I know, and I know that we like to look at the U.S. and say, "Hey, the one thing that separates us, you know, even beyond hockey, is that we've got this universal healthcare system, and we have a publicly funded system that anybody who wants care can get it, and we don't have profit in our system." That's fundamentally not true. For our seniors, we have a, a model, a, a, a profit model that has exploited workers, that cost contains for seniors, that does not deliver on the outcomes that we would want for our loved ones, for our grandparents, our parents, um, our neighbors. And we need a wave of accountability. So I, I agree with you. I think we need to see mm. us change what we can accept but also to ensure that there's accountability in the system for the people who've you know, built this country, who we've all learned from, that have so much wisdom and strength, and to not deliver on a new future, I, I think, is, is unforgivable to the lives that we've already lost. I'm, I'm so glad you said that, and I'm glad you brought up the states. I, I lived there for nine years, and it, it, beca- it became one of the conversation pieces that people would say, well, you know, aren't you glad to be back in Canada? It's pretty great. And I'm like... I'd say, you know what, if you have a job and you have and you have benefits and you're fortunate enough and you worked hard to to get in that position, the U.S. system takes pretty good care of you. It does. And uh, and and you've got access that you don't have here in immediacy. Like we pat ourselves in the back in Canada about our socialized health care. But you you just laid out you described it in one of your tweets as fragmented and how it is and how how many inequalities there truly are. Uh, in the system for for the poor people, for disenfranchised people. Uh, and right. there's a way to do socialized health care better than we've been doing it. And long-term care is only a p- small part of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, how how do we get the uh, the urgency with messaging with vaccinations? I, I was talking earlier in the show how, boy, we're just suffering from this trust gap uh, with our politicians at the provincial level, at the federal level. So it's it's really not... It doesn't not one party can own this. I'm I'm the first person to say that. But I I worry. And, I, and that's why I think it's important that, you know, radio shows, newspapers are talking to the smart people, talking to the active and aggressive people like yourself on social media and saying this is the messaging. I mentioned earlier, there's people worried about vaccines because they're diabetic or they have Parkinson's or they're allergic to bee stings or peanut butter. No, no, no. You have to get this. How do we get that message out there and, and are, are, are emphatic about it? Look, I mean, first, I think there's kudos for you and the media that's, that's providing the straight talk on this, trying to get to the issues of the evidence, ensuring that issues like um, our seniors and elders in long-term care do not uh, remain overlooked, that tragedies like this do not just slip off the radar. So I think that having that persistent focus. We know that the media can have a short attention span, but the fact that so many different outlets, so many different uh, journalists are remaining fixated on the fact that this cannot go back to the way it was and that we do need uh, beyond urgent action to save lives right now, I think is of crucial importance for the public dialogue. Um, you know, I think to the, the other part of your question, you know, I think there's this this opportunity right now um, to ensure that uh, we're able to be transparent about what's out there. You've talked about us having a fragmented system. It, it's having to overcome all of these barriers um, 
histories of mistrust, in, in some cases rightful, that you know have happened of where trust has been broken, trying to build that back, trying to push forward. This is what makes this such a challenging stretch. But as you, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I mean, in many ways, we haven't been in a more dire, dark part of the pandemic. We're seeing refrigerated morgues popping up in, in different locations. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, ICU capacity uh, stretched in ways that we've not seen throughout the entire pandemic. Uh, and so this is where we're really going to need to come together. We're really going to have to ensure that, um, you know, we're, we're being open uh, about the challenges, about the missteps, but that, um, you know, there's there's a focus on us getting through this. And I think if we don't pull together on this and push past the partisan politics. And one of the most toxic things in this is partisan politics in a pandemic. I mean, I think where we saw things work well is when all of our leaders transcended the politics, realized they had to work well together to save lives, to support people, Mm. uh, to protect people. And if we get back into, you know, political punting of issues, of shirking, of trying uh, to cast blame on one party or another, um, public health is going to suffer and the public is going to suffer. So I, I think we just really need to also ensure that you know our leaders aren't falling into that because none of us can afford that right now. No. And I, I love the big picture nature of this discussion because I think we got two calls to make. I saw Fareed Zakaria say something echoing this on uh, on Bill Marshall a couple months ago, is that if, if this isn't the only pandemic... Um, and and he doesn't think it will be. We've got to be better prepped for it. We can't. We we, we either change um, and are a lot more prepared, and that is more what we need to do. And that's going to cost money. That will. But that's the 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 other response to this, Doctor Boozery. That's going to be bad. Oh, thank God, that's over. Back to normal life. Uh, twenty twenty is over. Thank heaven. That's not going to work. Yeah. That's not yeah. going to work on a lot of different levels for the current and to be prepped for next time. And and I would even just push on that. You know, Greg, I think you're spot on, but I think the one piece is we could, if we don't have the solidarity and commitment to the things you've discussed about how our public dollars are spent, how we're protecting each other, how inclusive a society we want, we could actually see a bit of a paradox where we we come out of this in a more unequal society, you know, and I think that's something where we've seen this happen with the empirical data through this, that it's been, you know, frontline essential workers uh, risking everything at times, not even Mm -hmm. receiving hazard pay or pandemic pay and a certain segment of the population of the most affluent, um, the most elite in the city, in the country, um, not having to be exposed to risk and actually um, having record years uh, in, in profit, in, in, in outcomes, in gains. And that kind of disparity is just bad for society going forward if we're not able to ensure that we come out of this with a more collective mindset you're absolutely right we're going to be you know less prepared for another pandemic but even on the things that we know already sap life years and affect people's health outcomes like you were talking about in the united states with you know poverty here uh, homelessness issues that we've allowed to take you know a chronic hold uh, they really determine how long someone lives, how well they can live. Uh, if we actually see that rise, uh, we don't even need to wait another pandemic. We're going to see a pandemic of poverty and yeah. loneliness 
and mental health all sort of take shape. And that's something we really have to be fighting for and fighting against right now. Yeah, couldn't couldn't say it any better. Dr. Bruce, you really loved our conversation. Hope we get to chat again. And thanks for uh, your advocacy, your aggressiveness, and I appreciate what you're doing out there. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you reaching out. Thanks so much, Greg. You got it. Dr. Andrew Boozer is physician with the Inner City Health uh, Associates and assistant prof at the School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Greg Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.